Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our postmodern conservative series, I am joined by my friend Tom Harmon to talk about our great late friend, Peter Lawler. We have been doing a series of podcasts in memory of Peter for the better part of two months now. We have gone through a full series with public intellectuals, and we are now doing another series with academics. And today I will be talking to Tom about academia, about Peter Lawler on higher education, about promises and heresies, about what's typical and what's innovative in American education in our times, and the prospects for a serious higher education that is the liberal arts. Tom, thanks a lot for joining me. It's good to talk to you again. It's been a while, as with all these things related to our national ongoing global catastrophe, but at least we get to talk. (laughs) So there's always an advantage to catastrophe. Please, first of all, introduce yourself for our audience and tell me how you got to meet Peter and to read Peter's book on education. Sure, yeah. So first of all, just to say real fast, your comment on the advantages to catastrophe, that's a very Walker Percy theme that I think Peter would have appreciated. I've thought about Peter quite a bit during this crisis. (laughs) Life seems to be more serious now, you know? Um, People are energized. (laughs) Anyway, like you said, I'm I'm Tom Harmon. I'm an associate professor of theology at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas. I live in Sugarland, Texas, which is a town about 15 miles southwest of downtown Houston. I live there with my wife and my four kids, and one one on the way. I've been teaching here at St. Thomas for about uh, nine years now. I had a two-year hiatus where I taught at a small Catholic film school doing fun interdisciplinary stuff, teaching about you know philosophy and film, film and literature, Catholicism and literature, things like that, and designing a now ill-fated uh, humanities program. At St. Thomas, I teach largely in the theology department, but I also teach in our great books honors program, mostly classical civilization, so the Greeks and the Romans, and the Old Testament. As far as my my scholarly interests, I publish mostly on St. Augustine. I'm very interested in faith and reason. My friendship with Peter began when I was an undergraduate, actually. I was 19 when I met him, and I know that you've had Mark Henry on the podcast before, I met Peter in the context of the ISI Summer Honors Program that Mark designed. The theme of that conference was Fukuyama's End of History Thesis. Not only were Mark and Peter there, but also Dan Mahoney was there. I think Pat Deneen might have been there as well, in addition to many others that you and your listeners would probably recognize. Bob Cranach and Barry Shane and Father Joe Katursky, David Whalen and Brad Berzer and folks like this. So I met Peter when I was just having a kind of intellectual awakening of my own. Before then, I'm embarrassed to say my introduction to anything even remotely politically serious was David Horowitz and his front page magazine. But that was actually significant to me because it was the first time I had read anything outside of the regular ruling class consensus. And I thought, oh, okay, some people can think that way. And that was actually in combination with my grave disappointment as I got to Gonzaga University, where I was an undergraduate, to find that the Jesuits weren't quite as Catholic as I thought they would be. There seemed to be not as much will to oppose things like abortion at this ostensibly Catholic university. And so that was my introduction to the fact that academia might be a little bit screwed up. And even Catholic academia, even even Catholic academia, might be a little bit screwed up. Fortunately, I had at Gonzaga an academic advisor who was a student of the late Father Ernest Fortin, 
His name is Doug Kreese. He's fairly well published in conservative venues, as well as being an excellent scholar, uh, not only on St. Augustine, but also on Thomas Aquinas and Robert Bellarmine. And he was able to point me toward the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. So I arrived in the summer after my freshman year of college, full of lots of energy, but not really knowing what I didn't know yet having no real sense that there was anything real to be called conservatism, let alone a conservative intellectual tradition. <laughs> so when I arrived there, the one that I gravitated to immediately was Peter. Peter was, as I think everybody has mentioned on your podcast, a sort of surprisingly electric personality, which is totally belied by his first impression, right? His first impression is someone who he mumbles, right? He dresses in a sort of sloppy way. He's constantly sort of looking to the side as he's speaking with you. But you very quickly notice that all of this seems to be studied. <laughs> I don't know, maybe it started out as habits with him, but he ended up cultivating these personal characteristics, I think, in a studied way because of the effect that it would have on people, especially students. And so one of the things that he did with me is he teased me. And that's what he did to a lot of people, I think, is that he teased you. And that was his way of actually taking you seriously. I mean, it's very, very Socratic mode, actually, is that in order to point to something serious, he's funny. And in order to point to something funny, sometimes he's serious. <laughs> what he would do in those sort of moments of teasing did more for me, I think, than many a lecture I had at my own university. It turned out that the topics that were discussed there and uh, Peter's way of discussing them ended up shaping me and the way I thought about things and the way I pursued my academic career really up to this point. My bachelor's thesis was on Walker Percy's arguments that animals can't use language. And my master's thesis was thinking together Augustine and Fukuyama on history. It was at least partially Peter's responsibility that got me to Ave Maria, where I did my master's and doctorate. He and Mark Henry, actually, Mark Henry recommended I go there because Father Matt Lamb was there, of whom Mark said, he's read everything. That was a great recommendation. But also, Peter told me that one of his younger faculty friends, Mark Guerra, was teaching there. Mark was the last student of Father Ernest Fortin at Boston College and has been, over the years, a collaborator with Peter. They were the ones who put together the Stuck With Virtue series of conferences and publications. And I think they were the ones who collaborated at a pretty high level on real going concern of Peter's, which is this notion that Christianity sort of uncovers the personal logos, uh, which is both different from what we get in classical paganism and in modernity, although having something in common with both. And so it was under Mark Guerra that I wrote my dissertation on St. Augustine's conversation with classical political philosophy. So then I took up my job at the University of St. Thomas, and here I am. <laughs> I guess I should say, because of who I'm talking to, that I learned from Peter along with you to take pop culture seriously. So like you, I've done some writing on movies and TV shows I learned that could be both an edifying and an important thing to do from Peter, who had a kind of Socratic attitude toward pop culture. Of course, you'd spend time in the marketplace to figure out what the opinions were that were, first of all, held by your fellow citizens, and second of all, which ones of them were worthy of consideration. 
One of Peter's best essay titles was Why Republicans Should Watch More TV. So I took that to heart, actually, and I thought, okay, well, there's something to this. This is good not only as a friendly activity of a citizen with respect to his fellow citizens, but you can actually learn something important, not only about vulgar things, but if you have the right attitude, you can learn something important about more important things as well. So the way that I approach those things is what I'm trying to do is to figure out what people's real concerns are as they watch these shows and and movies. Sometimes those concerns are important and there's an insight there that snobbier people might miss. (laughs) And that's partially what I think Peter tried to bring out when he watched shows like Friday Night Lights and Girls. That's what I try in my own less successful way to do as well. Walker Percy famously said that novelists are like canaries in a coal mine. You want to pay attention to what sets them off because it's probably going to affect a lot more people soon. I think on the conservative side, because we don't do culture, there's a healthy skepticism of actors and all people who are professional phonies. I'm not against that. But I think there's too much resentment and therefore kind of blindness that leads people to think that, well, if only we could stop these liberals from doing any pop culture, then we'd be fine. But of course, we wouldn't be. Walker Percy is right that there's always something happening and much of it can't be good. It's not our nature to be perfect. And so you want to figure out what is coming, what is ongoing. And novelists, movie makers, TV writers tend to figure that out first and to get a kind of consent around it. They are not the cause of the problem, but they do show not just that it's happening, but also that it speaks to certain human concerns that will not likely be dismissed among a free people. People will make up their own minds. People will decide for themselves what it is that speaks to their hearts, that they are willing to admit at some public level is deeply and truly disturbing or promising. And in America, that shows up in pop culture and not really anywhere else. So Peter was ahead of the curve on this. And I think that's because however sophisticated entertainment got in America, he thought that it was not that sophisticated. As a very ironic man, Peter realized that these people are all sincere. When they tell the kinds of stories you see on girls and so forth, they really mean that they're 20-somethings desperate and more flirting with suicide than happiness. And everything that they've been led to believe is nuts. But they just don't know what to do about it. And so with many other parts of American pop culture, for every very reflective artist, there are a hundred popular artists who are screaming from the rooftops and people applaud instead of taking notice, which is, I think, the most hilarious thing about it. Because I'm a film critic by profession, I came to think of the American press as a kind of conspiracy of the critics and the public not to take their artists seriously, which is... (laughs) So yeah, that's something that Peter tried very hard to shake people out of in his funny way, pointing out that there's a whole world that a lot of people who claim to speak about worldly things are not aware of. That should be something that would worry us. I think actually his strengths as a pop culture critic and his strengths as a teacher are linked. What you see in his treatment of girls, for instance, is that he takes Lena Dunham much more seriously than Lena Dunham ever took herself. He treats her longings and pathologies as things that could point to the truth about her real situation and as resources that she could use if she was led in the right direction. I think that's the attitude that he took toward his students and toward a lot of young people that he encountered in his many travels, in his association with the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. That's certainly how I found him. I was a fairly unremarkable undergraduate when we met, and here was this extraordinary mind that I encountered as a very young man, and um, he took me seriously. 
that has a profound effect on someone. When someone who's that august takes you that seriously, that makes you take yourself more seriously. That kind of attention which he gave to so many people over the years is I think the reason why you'll find so many people with such great affection for him and having been influenced a great deal by him, even though he never really taught in a graduate program. He's never been churning out disciples in the way that someone at a research university teaching in a doctoral program would have. And yet, because of this personal charism that he had, there's, I think, many of us out there who were deeply influenced by him, by his thinking, and by his manner of life as well. I think this is probably the case for you also. I don't want to speak for you, but for me, when I'm thinking about something seriously, oftentimes the voice in my head that's coming back at me is Peter's. (laughs) especially, of course, since his untimely death. But during life, I would oftentimes send him little notes or emails just to try to chew things over. And unlike other people that you might think of as occupying the exalted posts that he has on the President's Council for Bioethics and that sort of thing, he would actually respond in a very thoughtful way. And he seemed to enjoy those interactions as well. So I think that his taking what a lot of people would consider to be silly pop culture seriously was part and parcel with his ability to take silly undergraduates seriously as well. He was no snob. He was interested in persons. <laughs> and they didn't have to be exalted fancy persons. They could be people like, like I was. Yeah, I think that this is exactly right. Peter was primarily a teacher, and you can't be a good teacher if you don't really love your students. And he thought of a great many people as potentially, at least, his students, including many people he disagreed with. So I think that's something that came across to almost anyone, that he was devoid of envy and resentment. Not simply devoid of dark passions, by no means. I'm not sure there's any such human being. He seemed much less partisan than most of us, much less angry, but he had his dark passions, his gloominess, his melancholy, but not envy and resentment. Partly because he saw how much silliness there is indeed in people, and much of it not malicious, much of it not all that corrupting. So he didn't object to this quite so much. It made him naturally a better fit for America because American culture is a youth culture. It lacks sophistication, it lacks education, but perhaps people can be provided with this as American higher education proves, and in a way as America's artists prove. These people are not cretins and they get smarter and sharper with age when they get a chance to follow up on what it is that they've noticed. They tend to be specialists, which I guess again speaks to America and what enterprise requires. You have to distinguish yourself in some way and then it's very hard or even dangerous to stray. But they do grow up even without the guidance of somebody quite as witty and insightful as Peter. Presumably, this is a promise that should not be neglected, perhaps especially in our times shouldn't be neglected, since there's far less institutional support for anything than there was before. Generations back, it was much easier to rely on many more institutions, and Americans were eager whenever asked to declare how much they loved institutions. Well, people are still asking, but people are not saying the same things anymore. (laughs) This indeed brings us around to our theme, to the question of what it means to make a future and to be American, which turns out to tie up with higher education. Higher education, at least since World War II, has been the defining feature of America. It's the luxury good accessible to the people in America. That may be a strange formulation, but I think this is what Peter meant when he said that in America, you can really and truly be Augustinian man. You don't have to be a Christian is what he meant. What he meant was that you're going to have to work for a living, but you're going to be able to learn for a living too. 
Lifelong learning is an American pursuit. A certain amount of leisure does characterize American lives, including or perhaps most obviously visible in those people so despairing that they destroy themselves. It is not because they do backbreaking labor in salt mines or what have you. It's not because they have been imprisoned by some horrifying tyranny. It's because America can break your spirit. And if you have a lot of time to think about it, you might choose death. This is horrifying, but it's also ordinary. That's the strange double punch that America deals. You could say that as that is the worst that we see among us, the best that we see among us in the same sense is higher education, where people get a chance to ask themselves what they'll do with their lives. In America, you don't know that you'll do the job your dad did or even live in the same town or state or what the country will be like, but you do get a chance to figure out what you'll do with your life. That, in turn, requires some kind of guidance. And here, in a very Tocquevillian way, Peter used to say that American higher education is part of America's aristocracy allows people for a moment at least to ask themselves, what kind of man, what kind of woman should I be? What do I aspire to? What can I achieve? What is it that I can do that I haven't already done, that I don't already am, that wasn't simply spontaneously there in my environment or at birth? What could I aspire to? In what way can I be better? That's the way in which people become people. It is a personal question to each one of us, and not everybody gives the same answers or goes through the same things. And so although only a minority of Americans have college degrees, and most of those people are not in the liberal arts, nevertheless, the liberal arts are the key to this whole question, because that is where the question, what life is worth living? What should I do with my life? comes up most clearly. And it is also the theme of the last book Peter published in his lifetime, American Heresies in Higher Education. So let's talk about higher education and the good that it has to offer and the dangers it faces in our times. Yeah, so Peter had a lot to say about higher education. As you say, he was primarily a teacher. I think all of his thoughts on education and higher education spring from his deep experience as a teacher. A lot of the things that he would say are really about what's good for the students. He saw a lot of the trends that accelerated in the 2000s, especially after the financial collapse, as being very bad for students. <laughs> These trends, oftentimes he would characterize them as moving higher education in a more libertarian direction. Peter was fairly moderate about what higher education does in a democracy. He acknowledges that most people have to work to support themselves and their families. And so a large proportion of their education has to do with preparing them to do those things. But the trends that really accelerated in the late 2000s were about shunting aside anything but the preparation for work. And so that very important space that you have as you're transitioning from childhood to adulthood, where you think about yourself, who you are, what you ought to do, how you stand with relation to God and neighbor, that was being shrunken until in many places, there's no space for that. It's all techno-vocational training with no chance to think about how we use these things, these technological and occupational tools that we're given. So a lot of the despair that you talk about that Americans have, even among the highly educated, is because we have this capacity to do all of these things, these technical skills, these professional skills, but we don't really have any sense for how they fit in a genuinely dignified human life. And so we end up falling into despair because we don't know what to do with ourselves. Well, that's traditionally what the so-called general education component of a college education is about. Uh, it's about orienting yourself. Even if you're eventually going to enter the workforce in a professional or technical capacity, at least you would have had the chance for a little while to think about God and, and your soul and uh, your obligations to your country and to your neighbor. 
But now the general education components of most college curricula are shrinking because people don't see what the use is anymore. Some of that is driven by panic, the urgency brought on by anxiety about whether there will be jobs for them in the future. And so they figured that, well, I better use this time to focus on what's most urgent. A lot of my students, for instance, wish that they could spend more time doing other things, more time reading Shakespeare, more time reading the Bible, more time thinking about philosophy and poetry. But they don't think they can afford that anymore. To a large degree, I think, especially in the public college system, the legislators who appropriate higher education budgets agree with them. And so you see shrinking humanities programs. And the humanities programs respond spastically by attempting to become more relevant to professionally minded or technically minded students. And so they try to sort of brand themselves or market themselves as being useful for jobs. And one thing that Peter was very good at pointing out is that the problem with that is that oftentimes when you take a humanities subject or a liberal arts discipline and you pursue it for the sake of something other than itself, for instance, a capacity for critical thinking or something like that, then you're likely neither to have mastered the liberal art nor really to become a critical thinker. So there's a paradox that the liberal arts are only really actually useful for, you know, occupational or technical purposes if you don't pursue them with occupational or technical goals in mind. <laughs> because it denatures the thing. You end up not really getting what you're supposed to be getting in the discipline. Those trends have definitely even accelerated further now that we're dealing with COVID-19. If you read the Chronicle of Higher Education, it seems like every other article is about all of the colleges that are going to close, all of the majors that are closing because they aren't directly related to earnings. So a lot of the things that Peter feared are, in fact, not only coming to pass, but probably even more quickly than he would have anticipated a couple of years ago. So there's a lot of reason for gloominess. <laughs> I should say that, at least in some respects, I think there may be some more causes for hope as well than we could have seen a couple of years ago. Peter was pretty fatalistic about the disappearance of the residential liberal arts college. He thought that eventually people were going to see this as just a luxury, and that springs from a defect in people's understanding about what those subjects are for. <laughs> uh, as an aside, he did mention in one essay that people would be less pathological if they spent more time in college reading Shakespeare and the Bible and thinking about those things in a serious way. And one indirect result of being less pathological is that they would be more productive. <laughs> Do you see there again the indirect relationship between productivity and the liberal arts? It's not like the liberal arts unsuit you for productive work. Actually, quite the contrary. When they're done well, it ought to make you capable of situating the productive part of your life in your whole life and therefore being a more satisfied, flourishing human being. That's when it's done right. But it is true that since people decreasingly have an experience with that kind of education, and they decreasingly understand what that education is about, they do increasingly view it as a luxury that is the first thing to get cut when budgets are tight. Now, there's a really interesting phenomenon, uh, I think, in the last six months. Between five and 10 years ago, and this is something Peter wrote about a lot also, there was this craze for online education, especially what's called a MOOC this giant online course where you have essentially no connection with your instructor. So there could be you know, 40,000 people in your quote unquote class. I think a lot of business types who were interested in disrupting higher education for the sake of cost thought that this was going to take over. 
And I think those folks were a little disappointed at the slow pace of change, actually. It turned out that traditional face-to-face in-person instruction was actually a lot more popular than they thought it was, even given the admittedly exorbitant prices. So I think a lot of those folks thought that perhaps the lockdowns would be an opportunity to maybe push the envelope a little bit to increase the pace of change toward those sorts of impersonal, cheaper (laughs) styles of education. Now, I can't speak for everybody, but I teach, you know, almost 100 undergraduates every semester. And from conversations that I had with my undergraduates at a small liberal arts college, which mostly enrolls lower middle class to middle middle class folks who are oftentimes ethnic minorities and oftentimes are the first in their family to go to college, they really want the in-person instruction. They recognize that there is an important accountability that you have with in-person relationships with not only your instructor, but also your fellow students. And one thing that Peter exemplified in his own life and also talked about in his essays was that teaching and learning happen embedded in an interpersonal relational context. It happens within a friendship. I think, as we all know, long-distance relationships are a different type of relationship. (laughs) There's something important about being together in the body, looking at another person's face as you're speaking to them, especially speaking to them about important things. After all, the eyes are the windows to the soul, and a lot of the subtlety of human interaction is missed in these online formats. And so I think a lot of my own students intuit this actually profound truth about teaching and learning, that it happens in the context of a relationship, a friendship, and a series of friendships. And so I actually think that one thing we may see after COVID-19, I'll play prophet here for a moment, but I'm not a prophet that's inspired by God. So when we listen to this again in five years and it turns out that I was wrong, we can rely on that. But I will prophesy a little bit. I think there's going to be a backlash against impersonal online forms of education among undergraduates, 18 to 22 year olds. There may be something totally different that happens with graduate education, especially in more specialized fields. And this is actually something that Peter noticed also, is that the royal road in American higher education has traditionally, and still really is, a more general undergraduate education with a humanities major, combined then with a graduate degree in some kind of professional or technical discipline, so that you get the grounding in humanities and liberal arts before and in preparation for your professional training. And the professional training actually is much more suitable to those sorts of more impersonal modes of instruction than the the general education or the humanities and the liberal arts education is. So I think actually that if you take that and then you rely on something else that Peter was very active in talking about in his last years, the fact that we're all stuck with virtue, right? Despite the transhumanist best efforts, we're always going to remain not only residually, but substantially human. (laughs) We might make things harder for ourselves, but we're never going to get beyond the necessity of virtue for happiness. And the virtues involved in teaching and learning are all these relational types of virtues that we pursue the truth as human beings primarily in conversation with one another. While it's true that you can, like Matt Damon in Goodwill Hunting, occasionally find these sort of de novo people who can apparently do it all themselves, although we have to notice that Will Hunting is a fictional character. For the most part, I'd say for 99.9% of people, the way that you become able to read these great books, or even the really good books, as Peter would say, to think about serious things is through a friendship with someone who's wiser than you. 
and to a much greater degree than probably even I had hoped for in the last couple of years. I think even my undergraduates at the University of St. Thomas intuit that. They want that friendship with their professors. They want intellectual friendship with their fellow students as they're studying things. Now, they might not be as serious about their studies as perhaps they would wish for themselves, but that's still a desideratum that they have and that they can at least somewhat articulate. So I'm a little bit more hopeful actually now about the fate of the American Residential Liberal Arts College than I would have been a couple of years ago. Now, that doesn't mean that a lot of them aren't going to close. I think a lot of them will close. But frankly, there are too many colleges in the United States right now anyway. And I do think that we could do it with a little bit of trimming. So that way, it could conceivably be the case that the ones that remain are stronger, less driven by competition for incoming students, and so are more able to carry out their mission, which occasionally requires you know, getting bad student evaluations and risking students transferring. <laughs> so that might be a very sunny outlook on things, but I think that outlook seems more likely to come to pass now than it would have a couple of years ago. This sounds quite persuasive, and I think it's because it's the first time when people have to ask themselves, when specifically students will have to ask themselves, is college really any good for me? It's very easy in the abstract to say, well, college is just a credential, or college is how you get into the better classes, or that's your job, or whatever. You'll find yourself. But you don't know if any of those things mean anything. People say a lot of things a lot of the time, and social media has made it worse. What do they really believe? What are they willing to act on? Now it will be tested. If people find that they really are, as Peter would say, relational beings, they need the friendship and the guidance of other people, then this is when they will learn that. If they feel they don't, then that is what they will conclude. Since we put our chips on human nature, I think it's a good bet that a lot of people will realize that months of enforced loneliness have not made them supermen. They have not made them superheroes or celebrities. They've made them lonely and sometimes even miserable. They might need other people. That's why I think that they make a very persuasive case. I agree also that the collapse in a certain way of higher education is ongoing and this will not stop because it's fundamentally unsound. But it doesn't mean that all parts of it are unsound. It might be that the biggest problem with higher education is that it has abandoned a grounding in the liberal arts. Well, it may be that what it used to mean was right. And we will find that out as well, if on a large national scale rather than the personal scale at which we figure out who we need and love and trust. That's true. Although one of my worries, and this is something that Peter touched on in several of his essays also, is that even the liberal arts colleges who trumpet their mission as liberal arts colleges no longer really know how to articulate why the liberal arts are important. Actually, if you ask <laughs> most people who teach at a liberal arts college, what are the seven liberal arts? They couldn't answer the question, let alone tell you why the seven liberal arts are important to study. <laughs> and an additional problem is how do you articulate why the seven liberal arts are important to study now? All of the sophisticated, cutting-edge higher education and business experts, I think, view the rapid pace of change of technology as obviating what the humanities and liberal arts are all about. Now, I think that's almost opposite of what's in fact the case, but it's very hard for most of these liberal arts colleges to articulate why that's so, largely because of something that Peter talked about in a lot of his essays, which is that for the most part, American colleges have now begun relying on liberal arts education really as a way to teach transferable skills instead of content. So you study Shakespeare not because it's important to know Shakespeare or it's important to have poetry in your soul or something like that, 
but so that you can become good at writing a critical essay, which then, of course, would be very useful if you're going to make a pitch to Amazon <laughs> or Boeing. <laughs> so in other words, they're interested in marketing the usefulness of the liberal arts in those terms rather than more traditional terms. But the problem is also that the more traditional terms, there's a translation problem. People who grow up now don't live in the same kind of mental world as the people that Mortimer Adler was addressing. Those arguments really kind of fall flat, I think. So we need new arguments about why people should be studying the liberal arts that hook on to not only sort of evergreen reasons to study the liberal arts, but, but why they're particularly useful now, not because they give transferable skills like critical thinking, but because it's especially important now to know what the human being is and to exercise the various faculties of our own humanity. Because what we're in the midst of right now in the digital revolution has to do with you know, being ruled by algorithms, by the impersonal. And I think Peter's focus on the human and the personal is especially important now. And his emphasis on the human and the personal in the context of a humanistic liberal arts education would be especially important now. And it's especially important to articulate that not only to folks who come to the University of St. Thomas, but also to our cognitive elite which is the term that he used. I think the term that conservatives use most now is the ruling class, but I think they mean virtually the same thing. Increasingly so, actually. <laughs> but there may be an opportunity with this cognitive elite, also with the sort of Silicon Valley digital entrepreneurs like Peter Thiel and Elon Musk, who may be more open to some of the things that conservatives might be able to say about the liberal arts and humanities, because not only do they know about the threats of rule by artificial intelligence, they actually help design that stuff. So they know it from the inside and I think can see some of the problems. Now, I'm not too confident that they have a lot of resources on their own at the moment to be able to deal with those problems, but there needs to be a kind of new conservative rhetoric about the humanities and the liberal arts and their importance now. I could be wrong about this, but I think there might be a willing audience if we're able to find the right words. Certainly the moment of opportunity, because up until recently, conservatives were primarily persuaded that a bunch of think tank arguments in Washington were going to carry the day, which is essentially magical thinking. It's sophistry with money behind it or with institutional power behind it. And that has turned out to be, in fact, very, very weak. And nobody can hardly remember what it is that people were saying five years ago. They've all been washed away. But this is, in a way, truer of Republicans themselves who have enjoyed the fantasy for 40 years that not only did Reagan save the economy, but the economy was going to save America. And yet it turns out that the economy we're actually dealing with is not that friendly. And the vast amounts of wealth created are primarily in the hands of people who hate conservatism and want it silenced, if not dead. So the time of delusions is, I think, over. It's time indeed to ask whether our elites think it's worthwhile to be human. <laughs> the liberal arts don't have any power. It's like in the old story with the hawk and the nightingale. The hawk can kill the nightingale, but the hawk cannot kill the truth that the nightingale sings. It is perfectly possible for tech elites and the broader cognitive elite, which encompasses academia and therefore also the media, the legal elites and the administrative agencies, and of course, so many politicians. Although you have to say that one of the judgments liberalism has pronounced on America is that representative government is the trashiest way to go, which is why our congressmen are almost always stupid and incompetent, whereas it's full of Harvard graduates everywhere from the media to the Supreme Court.
But it is the case that we have cognitive elites and it is the case that we have to ask, do these people even believe it's worthwhile being human and do they even know what that might mean? We notice increasingly something that Walker Percy referred to as a complex angelism, bestialism, a peculiar notion that human beings are some kind of combination of hard-headed realism, which cannot be distinguished from being willing to inflict bestial punishments. And on the other hand, a strange, fantastic notion of freedom that borders on self-creation. And indeed, we see that the more people are desperately chasing after the credentials of the elites, primarily a great college degree, the more they seek desperately after identities that don't matter at all. The more people feel that their lives aren't really lives or their own, the more they chase after meaning in their life. And any number of identities, including woke revolutionary, are much in vogue now. This splitting apart of the human being was a big theme for Walker Percy, of course, and his indictment of modernity. And it was a big theme for Peter Lawler as well. And you could say that higher education is about making that crisis less dangerous and at least offering people some chance of dealing with it. That is to say, of understanding themselves both as free individuals and as relational, and therefore not free, duty-bound individuals, but in those duties that can be characterized as love and friendship, and therefore not experienced merely as oppression. As our pop culture is less impressive these days, one can turn instead to Twitter to learn about all the drama of people's lives. If you know who to follow on Twitter, you will every day learn about the strange caricatures of human beings that our celebrities are, but also about the dramas of normal people who realize that, uh, you know, you have a baby and now you understand what it's like to be a human being, whereas you had always thought of yourself as a free-floating individual before. Uh Now you're on somebody else's schedule, and it's not because of some kind of fear for your reputation or desperate desire for your future. There's nothing in it for you, in a sense. People will speak up about these things. There is nobody to guide people. There is no education for the people who are discovering that they are human beings, that their freedom only makes sense in relation to their relations. That is to say, those relationships you can put a name to, family, love, friendship, things like that. But indeed, that was the use of higher education in the liberal arts. It told people stories about how human beings have dealt with things before and gradually helped them work their way to understanding how to be human. Work is some part of life and a pretty prominent part of life, of course. Aspirations of various kinds are part of that too. But it also taught people that there are certain limits to what they should be doing and what they can countenance. These have, however, flown out the window. I think that the primary reason why the liberal arts have lost their power to persuade is not even the fact that most people involved in the liberal arts are doing very stupid things very stupidly. It's not their incompetence, exactly. It's that they don't even realize that there's a deeper intellectual problem upstream of them. The liberal arts are really therapy for people who can afford it. And the fact that it's not very good therapy is nothing to the point, since it's not supposed to be therapy. Of course it's bad therapy. The question is, why do we need therapy for our cognitive elites? Why is it that people who aspire to the highest prestigious schools on the planet are broken and experience themselves as screaming in the void? That would be Mm -hmm. the bigger deal. The notion that if they get a job or if they get on a career track, then they'll be fine, I believe has also been belied by events. In the last couple of years, our elites at various levels have proven that they are insane. Nobody's asking these people to confess that some election they lost or whatever has sent them into therapy, but they will do it gratis. <laughs> they feel yeah. indeed entitled to say that they are broken, that they have absolutely no self-control, that they're going crazy. 
I think that's a kind of morality. And that confession is, in a way, endearing, not to say heartbreaking, because these people's lives are a mess. Many people's lives are a mess, granted. But it does show the specific problem of elites on whom the rest of us in certain ways depend, since they have an enormous outsized influence that conservatives and Republicans have not been willing to acknowledge on the good Republican principle that, in fact, we're all equal under the laws. Everybody's a citizen, so why should these people get to matter so much more? Well, now we're learning that they do, because they can do drastic things to other people. And that, too, is going to come into question. Why are they allowed to do such things? How can other people experience themselves as Americans if they live in fear of what a bunch of assholes with a Silicon Valley corporation could do to them? So a lot of the questions of elites, what they inflict and what they incur, are now national news. We should maybe mention here also um, Matthew Iglesias's horror recently that, in fact, what he had initially regarded as silly tempests and teapots on campus with respect to political correctness had, in fact, real-life impacts at, for example, the New York Times editorial board. <laughs> so conservatives are in a strange place right now, actually. They seem to have been proven right that the pathologies of our universities really would have immense real-life impacts. And the great awakening in America, I think, is the evident sign that that's the case. But you're right. Also, conservatives have been living in a fancy world about the role of the elites also. And to some degree, conservatives are waking up to the fact that actually the elite is really important. And maybe it was a mistake that we didn't take the cultural elites, the educational elites especially, that seriously the elites that are really responsible for teaching and shaping young people. (laughs) So conservative efforts have gone toward the legal profession. They've gone toward business, but very little conservative effort has gone toward culture and education. And we're kind of reaping what we've sown or have not sown as the case may be now. And that's why I think Mark Henry's efforts over a 15 year period with the Intercollegiate Studies Institute was such a good and important effort I think he describes it as trying to seed academia with conservatives. But I think now there might need to be a different strategy. It may have been possible 15 years ago to do that, to take conservative undergraduates, to sort of accompany that undergraduate through grad school, and to help that conservative newly minted PhD then get an academic post somewhere, to kind of fly under the radar until tenure. And then maybe they could start teaching more openly. But I think the Great Awakening makes that impossible now. People's antennae are up. They're not going to be willing to tolerate even those token conservatives anymore. And that sort of effort, I think in retrospect, we have to say, has really diluted conservatives' ability to make any inroads into the academy. Because by focusing on that effort to seed the dominant institutions with conservatives here and there, we may have missed an opportunity to build something institutionally. And so our efforts have gone toward making sure that there's a kind of marginal conservative presence in the Ivies, when maybe what we should have been doing is concentrating on our own institutions like Hillsdale's done, or like Thomas Aquinas College has done. Maybe we would have more than just those two (laughs) if we had done that. And you can see that a concerted institution-wide effort is going to be much more impactful than a sprinkling here and there. And I think the sprinkling approach has in part led to the phenomenon that you were talking about at the the beginning here, the think tank approach. What you get are these folks who have been shaped by their experience in elite liberal institutions, and they've got some kind of version of Stockholm syndrome, where they still value far too much the opinions of their former teachers. 
sort of the willingness or the, in some cases, excessive desire for the approval of those folks is, I think, part of the problem. And I think at this moment now, conservatives really have to divest themselves of that unhealthy need. <laughs> we have to be satisfied with building our own institutions and not being too worried about what the faculty of Princeton thinks. Yeah, I think you're right. This is now a time of institution building. I think 15, 20 years ago, it wouldn't have worked for the two obvious reasons you have already suggested. First of all, young talent wanted to fit in. They wanted to get that good college degree. They wanted to go from there to researcher in some kind of think tank. And after a lot of trashy work there, they get the gig in columns or they get the gig in writing that book. They put up all these conservative books that are meaningless, but they allow them to think they are part of a national conversation where the entire national conversation is fake. Nothing in the conversation for 20 years has predicted any of the crises we've been going through or fixed them after they happened. And of course, that gets to a deeper problem. If you were a young ambition 20 years ago, what could you have gone into as a conservative? What could you have done to earn the respect, not to say admiration of conservatives? Pretty close to nothing. People didn't give a damn. Indeed, it was, as is now a common opinion, that you should admire the people and the things that liberals do. The elite of America is uniformly liberal. Yeah. People who disagree with it cannot disagree with it in anything but liberal terms. Yeah. Intellectual domination is that wide. And of course, you know, if you look at it from the outside, it's quite laughable. It is pathetic to think that you can form a political opposition, much less a new coalition, with people who do not think first of their own electorate and second of the nation, and say to think practically. Let me mention an example relevant to higher education. One of the most extraordinary phenomena in conservative education right now, has been for several years now, is the rise of homeschooling and classical schools, largely coming out of evangelical and Catholic circles, but not confined exclusively to them. Well, where is the elite conservative support for those movements? I mean, here's something that could actually change the game, but there is not a single conservative education school in the country that focus, well, I could actually just stop there, but <laughs> I'm also gonna proceed. In addition to there being not a single conservative education school, there's no education school in the country that focuses on classical education, even though there are all of these primary and secondary classical schools popping up all across the land. So where is the institutional support? Where is the conservative donor class? Why aren't they supporting this? There's this extraordinary grassroots thing that's happened almost completely outside of conservatism, Inc. That's one of the great missed opportunities, I think, of the last 10 years. Now, if conservatives want to actually do something in the realm of politics or education, they have to seize this opportunity. So, I mean, we'll see. The good thing about classical education is that it's actually cheaper than the alternative. You've got people who will teach it because they love it. You don't have to pay them a whole lot, and they're happy with it. You don't need fancy labs. You don't need a whole lot of materials. All you need is a teacher and a book and some students and a classroom. <laughs> especially in Texas. We couldn't really have class outside much of the year here. But that's all you need. So it shouldn't be that difficult to support these efforts. And yet it's been basically a grassroots thing. Yeah, I agree. And this is a very important phenomenon that the American people, but especially the Republican electorate broadly construed, is way ahead of its elites on this issue. It's not the only one granted, but it's the most important when it comes to the future of the country, which is by definition education in the next generation. And of course, the education of the next elite an elite that will not be a bunch of people who are thinking about going into their 20s into business or into Washington. 
if that's all you have on your mind. And there's nothing wrong with politics or business. It's just that look at where it's gotten people. Politics itself is going to go through trouble because a lot of people realize that you can lie to the American people. You can pretend to be the next populist and be the same kind of politician they made 20 years ago that committed the Republican Party to suicide. When once it got all its elites that it could possibly get, the post-Reagan Republican Party inside of a generation committed suicide on the two things that Reagan said he gave America in his farewell address and that everybody agrees with. He saved the economy and he beat the Soviet Union. He said he kind of screwed up on the patriotism, but you can't ask everything of somebody. Now, where's the Republican reputation on foreign policy and the economy now? They committed suicide inside of a generation with the benefit of all the elites they could possibly have desired. So I think that's done. But there's a lot of people who are in their 30s, 40s, or early 50s who have gotten into politics thinking that you just have to sound a little tea party. You've got to sound a little country. You've got to sound a little Texas, and then you'll make it with the same ideas that they had in 2002 and trying to impress the same kinds of people who were speaking then. And that is going to poison politics for a while. This is like the examples you gave before, an example of what it means to poison education by asking too much of it too soon and by not trusting it to do its job and then those people to grow up and take a look around them and figure out what they can do that's useful and good for other people. Mm -hmm. So it is in fact much more reliable to look first to education if people want political success, cultural survival, and an opportunity to be American without being charged with thought crimes for it. <laughs> I should say that one of the things that I'm very grateful for about my current institution, the University of St. Thomas, is that the woke revolution has not made it here yet. And it may never, actually. So I do not live in fear of being accused of, of thought crimes. I know that a lot of my friends who teach other places do. <laughs> so I regard myself as very lucky, maybe blessed. <laughs> Yeah, it does seem you are in a shelter that might turn out to do disproportionate good for the nation later on. And as I said, there's a lesson there. These things take time, but it is only now when it seems like there might not be time anymore when people can take this stuff seriously. The truth mm -hmm. is that 10 years ago, the homeschooling movement was not such a big deal in America. Yeah. But in the last decade, it has grown enormously. Yeah. And now it is possible to tell politicians that this is a real thing. It might be possible to install new things, starting with schools of education. Well, and yes. And in fact, this is where I'm not sure what you think about this, but one of Peter's favorite phrases was libertarian means for non-libertarian ends. Well, I think maybe we need some non-libertarian means for some non-libertarian ends also. So I mentioned the failure of the donor class to capitalize on grassroots support for classical education. What's Betsy DeVos doing? I and mean, what's the Department of Education doing? Why isn't there more movement from our political institutions to support what's good that's coming out of grassroots conservatives or organizations? I mean, we've got essentially what are laboratories popping up all over the country in this. So why isn't the Department of Education working overtime to take the lessons from those new classical schools and try to apply them more broadly? Well, it's because we've been infected by this sort of loser ideology. It says that, well, what we need is school choice. And I'm a big proponent of school choice. And I think that uh, American educational diversity, though it's decreasing these days, is a very important and valuable thing. But also, when conservatives are in control of the Department of Education, you ought to see more positive conservative educational reform, not just cutting funding. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's just not happening, and it's not going to happen until the party changes. 
yeah. it is the case that these people simply do not wish to govern. Nobody can force you to govern. If you can sucker people into electing you, you're home free. And I would add that this DeVos lady, she's not poor. In fact, she no. will be funding the renaissance of American education without missing it. Yeah. As with any number of other Republicans or conservatives, these people would drown in their money first before they do something to save the republic. That's why I believe Peter was right when he said we need libertarian means for non-libertarian ends. It requires something like the fact that lots and lots of people, millions, are educating their kids themselves. That's Mm -hmm. what can lead to change. It would have been nice had in the Bush years, people been helped along, but they didn't because they didn't give a damn. And now they're not doing it because they don't give a damn. And they don't have to give a damn while the numbers are not there. It is only when the numbers change that they will have to give a damn. You know, that's an ugly truth about what it means to have so much freedom of choice. You can ignore the evident and you can commit to suicide and not feel even a little bad about it. So (laughs) it is our problem. It is not the problem of the people who could fix this problem because they don't give a damn. Getting people to give a damn is the problem in America, in short. And as we, I think, both agree, it's crisis that gets people to give a damn. A lot of people will worry now. A lot of people will have to make very serious decisions about all sorts of things from where do they live, from family and education, all the way to what do they really believe about America and will they do something to help the nation out? Mm-hmm. But, you know, this is America, not a land of martyrs. You're not going to find a lot of people sacrificing their lives for the cause. Now, people will screen at their TV for the cause and they might write a check for the cause. Beyond that, it gets harder and harder. Perhaps the hard times will help a lot of people wake up and realize that screaming at your TV is not enough. That saying horrifying things on social media is not enough. Mm -hmm. There are more practical and more useful things that involve other people. And this is the mark of what it really means to be human. Are you involved with other human beings for something that you can share in? Or are you stuck alone behind the screen? I don't think people appreciate the extent to which this is generally an American problem. What Peter meant when he said that higher education makes for aristocracy in America, he meant that you can get finally a sense of what it means that you have freedom of choice. That is to say, you know what it is that you're looking for and you're measuring the means, which one is better and which one is less good. Freedom of choice otherwise is not particularly useful as so many people are now finding and hating themselves for it. And it's not just that. The praise of higher education in Peter always came with an attack on our cognitive elite that climaxed in saying that they are not classy people. They are the worst of our bourgeois life. Incredibly rich, famous, and incredibly entitled, but they never do things for other people. They're traumatized. They can only live on pills. That is why things are not changing. All it takes in America is a visit to Washington, D.C., You can just take American kids to see what happens in the Senate. You go up in the gallery and you look down in the well where people are making speeches alone to a goddamn empty chamber for the YouTube clips so that they can get some money. Those are senators. There are 100 senators in a nation of 330 million, and they feel powerless to do anything except advertise themselves for their re-election campaign. It's an ugly truth, but there it is. Well, parents who homeschool don't feel powerless. They might be very angry about what's happening, but they don't feel powerless. People who start a classical school do not feel powerless. These are people who can get something done and who know the good of it because it involves other real human beings. It is not an abstraction. And this is why, ultimately, the people are in many ways far ahead of their elites, at least on the Republican side. 
getting new elites that can deal with that is not going to be easy, but that is the task of higher education. Not just because you're going to have to educate the next generation of elites, but because you're going to have to educate the next generation. People who will look to their elites and ask for specific things to get done, not people who are willing to sign checks, elect people, and then go on TV and look at people complain about stuff that they're powerless to change. Well, this is, of course, the reason why conservative education policy folks have been able to live in a fantasy world for so long, actually. I mean, we we can complain as much as we want about tenured radicals and the woke campuses and such like, but it turns out that, at least up to this point, most of our teenagers, even having been raised in conservative households, were still interested in choosing those very places. So what will make the conservative movement as a whole deal with the lousy educational institutions are when those teenagers and their parents, who may have been homeschooled, who may have gone to classical schools, start wondering how to take the next step in that kind of education. Where are the universities where I can continue this classical education? And that will happen increasingly as the number of homeschoolers increases, as the classical schools increase. But of course, what worries me long-term policy-wise, even short-term policy-wise, really, is it could be possible to crush those efforts politically. I mean, there's all sorts of levers at the disposal of people in power that could destroy those admittedly very fragile institutions. None of these classical schools are rich, <laughs> or very few of them, at least. So it wouldn't take much to push them over the edge, a little bit of extra regulation. So we'll, we'll have to see what happens there, but there obviously still is a role for politics as a kind of shield for these grassroots efforts. But obviously um, that shield can be removed and there could be a sword put in its place very easily. That is a very good point. Everywhere you look from the federal government to the internet, liberals have realized that they are in a desperate moment and they have to do desperate things. My conservative friends have been quite proud of themselves over the last couple of years for humiliating liberals, never thinking about what it means to humiliate people. What do you think they might do in return? Indeed, what they are doing in return is censoring people on social media because it turns out social media is much more conservative than entertainment otherwise is. There is a surprise. But of course, it might be more dangerous still. It might be using not just Silicon Valley, but Washington, D.C. to destroy people's freedom of choice. That's another thing in favor of American libertarianism, if used well, that is for non-libertarian purposes. If people make sure that they defend their institutions, it is certainly in the power of red states to defend their schools, but only if people force their governors and legislatures to do so. They might not want to. They might not be interested in picking a fight here. It is only if the people force their politicians into it, this is going to change. One assumes that there are now enough people involved in the alternatives that conservatives prefer in education and the freedom that Americans naturally prefer to choose for themselves so that something can be done to defend against liberals using the federal government to ruin it for ordinary people. This is what Peter meant by using libertarian means for non-libertarian ends. Americans, he said, are naturally pro-choice. If it's a choice, they want it. Do they ask if it's good? Not always, and usually not at first, but gradually people do realize that some things are better and others are worse, and they become habituated, and that's where you have to put your trust that you can persuade people to defend themselves against attacks, first of all. That is one case when you can rely on your gut instinct. Your gut instinct will always tell you to defend yourself. Mm -hmm. This has not until recently been the case because people didn't take seriously the problem, but also, I believe, because people didn't think they had something to defend. Yeah. But the situation, I hope, has changed to the better sufficiently that we can now ask people to defend the conservative alternatives to education, the American diversity in education. Well, 
I think if you read, for instance, as I just did, Peter's criticism of Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Minds, I think maybe there are some more resources now that we have available to us. I mean, his criticism of Bloom was basically that Bloom wasn't paying close enough attention to his students, where Bloom saw his students as being flat-souled, as being really unmoved by human or divine things. Peter noticed that's really just the hard shell of an exterior that they were projecting. He talks about the kind of therapeutic, pragmatic happy talk that they used to cover over what was really pain. He says that Bloom contradicts himself when he talks about the children of divorce not really having the words to express the pain they, they felt at the breakdown of their familiar relationships. Back then, what recourse do you have if you're that person? Well, you're a therapist. The TV show that shows you that actually divorce is really okay and you can still get on with your life. But now what you can do is you can go to Reddit and you can talk with other people who have the same experience as you in an uncontrolled circumstance. And you can realize, no, actually, this sucks. I am hurting. <laughs> and the reason I'm hurting is because of this lousy thing my parents did. So you can burst the illusion that the therapists and Hollywood have spun. And so we do have these kind of peer-to-peer -peer resources available to us now. Where does that go? Well, it goes in a lot of really bad places. Um, <laughs> there might be the possibility for it to go in good places. I mean, recognizing you have a problem is the first step and all that. But it's not an edifying thing to visit the incel chat rooms or to look at the pickup artists, Reddit pages, things like that. I think that's the direction that realization is taken, which is all part of the red pilling, right? So being red pilled is basically realizing that you've been lied to. But realizing you've been lied to about something is not the same as being able to know what the truth of the situation is. <laughs> and so it will be just as easy for people to hit on new lies. Far harder to actually deal with the truth of their situations. Yeah, I think this is right. Peter insisted on this thing that Alan Bloom wanted to make very little of. He does include it in Closing of the American Mind that you cannot break people's hearts and then whistle. They will know what you have done to them at some level. They will be broken perhaps for life if they were children and never learned that it wasn't their fault, that their parents were wicked people. Bloom didn't want to deal with this because his interest was not political there. Peter was a strangely political kind of man, and that's partly to do with his <laughs> Christian reassurance that between human nature and God's providence, it's not that bad. We scream yeah. our televisions, but it's not the end of the world, actually. Just look at people who scream at their televisions. Five minutes later, they're going on with life. It's yeah. maybe not all right, but it's kind of all right. But he was far more political than Bloom in this regard. And yeah. he therefore was very willing to point to anger. And anger is the defining passion of our times. America has been dissociated, and this was always going to take a political form. Now, if you look at electoral demographics, married women vote Republican because married people vote Republican because they would like ordinary life to continue. But right. single women, by 40 or 50 points, vote Democrat. The only yeah. question is how to get as many of single men to vote Republican, and then we can have a war of young women and young men who are unmarried. America has invented, in the name of liberalism, unmarried 20-somethings as a rule. This mm -hmm. was a very bad thing to do, but now it has been done and it will have to be dealt with. Yeah. And that will indeed mean offering young men something better than a goddamn red pill, or as it has already turned, the black pill. You have to realize that nihilism is the truth of being. Well, don't do that. <laughs> well, yeah. It's very hard to come back from that. Yeah. That's you, right. At that point, yeah. you're sort of beyond human nature and only relying on God's grace. So, yeah. And yeah. I suppose that's why people do it, really, because they want to take revenge on the world. They will only take life back, as it were, if it comes by God's grace. Nothing else will reassure them. It's 
a very dangerous attitude to take and it's certainly dangerous for politics and very dangerous or terminal for education. But that is indeed yet another indication that the liberal fantasies of previous generations have simply failed. Mm-hmm. Those fantasies do include all the liberal movies about education, including Goodwill Hunting. That is fantasy talk. In reality, it's much <laughs> uglier and there is much more suffering and you're not going to talk people out of that. Mm-hmm. It will have to be a kind of education that can tell the young men why it is that they're hurting so much and what they might do about it so that they're neither stupid nor powerless. But that, if anything, is the theme for another conversation. And I hope that our audience will get from this all the signs they need that they should go and read Peter's American Heresies in Higher Education. There is much in our social drama that is revealed in education and exacerbated, unfortunately. But we cannot wave it away. And I think people are realizing that it's a real concern. It defines something about who we are because the stuff that we hate and the stuff that we long for are deeply connected and they point in two directions, both to what we think we're losing or have lost and what it is that we think was not all right and we long to change, to make better. To make that arrangement at all plausible and civilized, to get to a better situation without catastrophe is going to be difficult. That is the task that our education crisis points to and it is political, it is also spiritual. There are many things that come together in this when we ask ourselves, is it really worth being human or would we rather burn it down? And it seems like more and more people say that these days. And I think one of Peter's key insights and maybe kind of the beating heart of much of his thought is his realization that what's key about us is our encounter with the personal logos, as he puts it, an imitation of Pope Benedict, that human beings are not unrelational individuals and they're not, absolutely speaking, some part of a larger whole. They are, um, they're persons, irreducibly relational, and they derive their dignity, ultimately the source of their flourishing, from being made in the image of a God who is both knowledge and will, who is himself personal logos. So I think that a lot of what Peter was trying to point to, even in the context of America, had to do with the coming together of these two things. He liked to point out, quoting the U.S. bishops, America built better than it knew. Well, how did it do that? Well, it combined the impersonal deism of some of the founders with the judgmental puritanism of other founders. And in his sort of quirky, half-tongue-in-cheek phrase, we ended up with accidental Thomism. <laughs> right, right. So I do think that he thinks that the fundamental choice that we have now and that maybe we've always had is between an impersonal logos and a personal logos. And to the degree that we try to radicalize our sort of theory about what it means to be human, we move in either the direction of Lockean hyperpersonality with no relationality, or we move in the direction of sort of Darwinian bestialism, the direction of our modern natural science, which is to say impersonality. I think that underlies a great deal of his thinking. That gets us to a whole different theoretical level, but that may be a nice note to leave people on. If you, want, if you really want to get to the heart of Peter's thought, I think it's there, and it ramifies throughout just about everything else that he talks about. Yeah, the plainest way I can put it is that the national attempts at suicide are not neatly, but obviously divided between the people who still believe in some strange way that therapy will suffice a few more fantasies and some more self-obsession and you'll like yourself fine. And (laughs) the people who have decided that this won't do, we need something more radical that starts with pharmacology. Therapy doesn't Mm -hmm. work, but if you put people on pills, they don't have to pretend to be human anymore. These are the twin dangers we face as man splits apart, as we don't know that we're human anymore. 
And either it was the fact that he always reverted to Augustine that made him sure that there's some combination of human nature and divine grace that will guarantee for us some possibility of perpetuation. Much of his wisdom came from that and therefore is a suggestion that he was on to something and people should consider this much more seriously than we have hitherto. Perhaps that too is a good theme for another conversation, the influence of theology on American politics and the strange split between this kind of natural theology that eventually leads to therapy and the Puritanism that leads to woke mobs, a morality of revenge and destruction for the sake of purity, the two culminate in an agreement that, in fact, all the past was worthless because being human was a mistake. You see here how political Peter really was. Also, contrast this with some of his other interlocutors. Peter was comfortable with letting the compromise at the heart of the founding remain a compromise. He doesn't demand that we choose either the Puritanism or the deism in the name of theoretical purity. So in that sense, he was less a theorist than a lot of his critics were. He recognized the political genius of marrying those two things. I think his own personal moderation flowed from that as well, that a way forward in America is not trying to have this kind of theoretical purity where we choose one or the other. We need to sort of live with the tension at the heart of our founding and recognize, hopefully, if we're of a more theoretical bent, that the founders may have built better than they knew. That is to say that by combining these things that are themselves not particularly compatible, we may actually have generated a concrete circumstance in which it's possible to live a decent human life. And trying to bend the bow in one direction or the other is going to sacrifice that. Perhaps that's part of what we're seeing right now. Yeah, people are not learning new things. People are recurring to their primary tendency. And it is either the one or the other. It is either a moralism that wishes to incinerate America because it is sinful, or on the other hand, an amoralism that says we just have to treat people like rats and then they'll behave the way we want them to. It's hard to say which is more insane, but these are natural temptations to say that you are merely an angel or that you are merely a beast. It is sometimes comforting. It is, however, a very dangerous thing to allow elites to slip into since they do have this strange influence. Whether it is possible to restore some moderation to our politics, some way of putting together things that don't easily fit together, we don't know. But that is now the task, Uh that the things that they have in their lives or that they can achieve with some measure of personal virtue are worth the getting. In a certain way, we are aliens in America because we're never going to have that perfection. And in another way, we are therefore stuck with virtue because it's never going to be the case that the system is going to fix our lives. We'll have to deal with our own circumstances, not rely on fantasists to fix our lives for us. This may still be a blueprint for how to deal with our drama if we take ourselves more seriously, but not all that seriously. Tom, thanks a lot for joining me. This has been a wonderful conversation. I'm glad to be able to chat again. And uh, I hope our audience is persuaded that this is both practically of interest. There is much for conservatives to do and much that is now possible to do in education and higher education. And that we still need, or we especially now need, this peculiar moderate wit of Peter Lawler's on topics ranging so wildly as politics and bioethics and indeed higher education, which turned out to be connected not just in our elites, but in our own concerns with our future. Well, thank you, Peter, for having me. It's been very enjoyable, and I hope this has been useful for the audience as well. All the best, Tom. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.